Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. Yeah, so welcome again to Inside LA, Long Beach, um, Sunday Sit, the beautiful Sacred Roots. Again, my name's Casey, and today we're going to chat about um, the life of Buddha and <clears throat> kind of how the life of Buddha can relate to our everyday life and, and experience. Um, one of my motivations for this topic today, I was rereading this book here, The Dharma of Modern Day Mindfulness. It's written by a good friend of mine and fellow teacher, Beth Mulligan. And she's um, one of the teachers that I do the week-long week -long Joshua Tree retreat that's coming up in January. Um, we teach that together. So she has a funny story in the beginning here. Great book, by the way. So she is a physician assistant and so this is a book written to talk about the richness and the depth of, of Buddha Dharma that has arisen into modern day practices like MBSR, mindfulness based stress reduction and more clinical type of, of practices so she talks about kind of where all that stuff comes from. So if um, you know anybody who's kind of in that world and you want to introduce them to um, the deeper concepts, it's a perfect book for that. And one of her motivations is that she was reading an article and it said, 25 years ago, microbiologist and meditator John Kabat-Zinn created mindfulness. <laughs> and she was like, oh no. And she cringed and and she wrote in to you know the writers, the, the publication and said, You forgot a couple zeros. <laughs> so it's not twenty-five years ago, it's twenty-five hundred years ago. And that really stuck with her. So she's like, Yeah, maybe we should really you know, we have to keep talking about kind of where it comes from. So that's one piece. And then the other piece is that it's always so relevant. You know, like, I think it's interesting to look that we're suffering the same way. Like, we're suffering the same. If you read the Vedas, like, 3,000 years ago, we're all suffering the same um, today. So that means the same remedies. You know, they st it still works, you know. So Buddha was born... Um, I tell these stories, I hope it's not too dry. I always feel like it's going to be like a boring story. <laughs> um, so Buddha was born in what we call modern-day Nepal. And it was uh, 560 uh, years B.C. So 560 B.C. in modern-day Nepal. The, the Buddha was born as Prince Siddhartha. So he was born into, obviously, a very affluent situation. And his father, the king was approached by a sage 12 years before. And this sage said, you know, you're going to have a son, and this son is going to be either a great king or a great saint. He, he wasn't sure which one. <laughs> They're happy about that. Um, so I think the king, you know, he was hoping 
that he would be a great king. And so during Buddha's life, he, he very much sheltered Siddhartha, you know, and he kept him within the confines of the palace. And within those confines, he never let Siddhartha see any old age, sickness, death, anything like this. So the Buddha, or Siddhartha at the time, he was, again, very sheltered in this way and given, of course, everything that he possibly could be given. Like all the, just the positive, awesome things in life, young, beautiful, people all around, food, clothing, all the goodness. So as was the custom at that time, he was married at 13 and had a baby boy. So he was a very young father. (laughs) And he lived that way until he was 28 years old. So quite a long time being very sheltered like this. So even though he had it all, there was something that kept, kept eating at Siddhartha. That this wasn't it. Like there must be something more. And he didn't know what it was, because obviously he didn't know what he didn't know, right? So finally, when he was 28, he escaped the palace walls. And with him was Chana, or in Sanskrit, Chandaka. This was his chariot driver, this divine charioteer, they call Chana. So they both escaped And they, of course, landed in the streets of India. And it was a quite, or Nepal, it was a quite poor province that they governed. And so, of course, Siddhartha was faced with lots of what? Suffering. Suffering. All everywhere, you know? So first they came upon an an elderly person, a very, very old person. And Siddhartha was, you know, what is this? And so Chana had to break it to him, you know, like this is, this is how it is. He says, does this happen to everybody? He says, you know, if you're lucky, if you last that long, if you're lucky, this will happen to you, everyone. So then he came upon somebody who was very sick, very ill. And again, very surprised. What is this? Oh, it's an alien body. Just happened to everybody. Well, yeah, eventually, you have old age, you have sickness. This happens. So he's blown away and very mad at his dad. <laughs> Why did he get, keep this from me? So then, not too much longer, they come upon somebody who had just recently passed away. And of course, Buddha was just in awe of this. What? What's wrong? So Chan had to break it to them, break it to him. This is what happens: the human body breaks down eventually, and we pass away. So everywhere he looked, he saw this suffering. And now, mind you, he's a prince, so he doesn't know anything about manual labor or anything. So he sees people toiling and working and all this stuff, suffering everywhere. So to take a look at just this, this little piece, we kind of look at 
our own sheltering, you know, like we've, most of us, kind of hopefully, at least uh, when we we're young, we've been sheltered a little bit by some of these harsh realities, you know, old age, sickness, and death. And these three became what the Buddha called eventually the three heavenly messengers, which I think is a, an interesting term. <laughs> Three heavenly messengers, like these beautiful things that came down and spoke, like in a divine way, right? Because this became his motivation for practice. But we see that we're that we are sheltered, like from society. Society shelters us from old age, sickness, and death, right? We kind of sweep up all the homelessness and the the sickness, and we stuff it away in hospitals and whatnot, right? And then in our family. We kind of, we kind of try to keep that stuff at bay, but more so from ourselves. Yeah, you know, like we know about these things, but we don't get into it too much. Uh, Peggy and Wendy just—I think they're finishing, or they're yeah, just about—it just finished, right? Um, yeah, it's amazing, amazing course on the heavenly messengers, right? So it's good to reflect on this, on how we are sheltering ourselves. So then when Buddha was walking around, he saw this one man walking and he was in the midst of this chaos and all this suffering. And he looked so serene and so calm. And Buddha asked Chana, who's this? This guy seems so calm and so serene. And Chana said, oh, this is, this is a monk. He's dedicated him, his life to spiritual pursuits and the freedom from the suffering. And when Buddha heard that, he knew, like his whole life changed. This is one of my favorite pieces of, of the story of Buddha because, I mean, at least from, from my viewpoint, when I kind of tripped upon actually the books at Hartha in high school, was what kind of motivated me for my spiritual practice. But it's this, it's not trying to achieve this, this state of bliss or, or like this, um, I don't, or this kind of uh, view of enlightenment that's kind of way out there. It was just simply a freedom of suffering. So how can we, how could he, in, in his way, go through the realities of existence in a way that's free from suffering? That was his goal. It wasn't to attain some, you know, levitation and clairvoyance and omniscience and, you know, all this stuff. It was just, can I be with the realities of life in a non-suffering way? That was it. He's like, oh, this is real. This is real. So how can I become, how can I do this with a sense of peacefulness? And I think that there's also this innate thing within us that says, shouldn't we be able to live life and not suffer? Isn't our divine right to be able to just simply be with what is in a non-suffering way. I mean, that feels just right to me. Like, it feels like, yeah, we should be able to face these realities in a non-suffering way, right? So, the Buddha, or Siddhartha at the time, left the palace. I'm always a little weirded out by that part because he does skip out on his family, you know? He's just like, I'm out, you know, to his kid and stuff, you know? But... 
he leaves his kid with a bunch of stuff. <coughs> so they're really rich. So he's like, you're well off. I'm out. <laughs> so he ends up studying a total of six years. And so he studies with lots of different teachers. And not one of, not, nothing's really clicking. He's not really finding a lot of really deep concentration practices, following different gurus and whatnot. And he becomes a, an aesthetic, so um, where they believe in, huh? Sorry. What? <laughs> okay. Did I say it wrong? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. You said aesthetic, which is like more like a. Oh, aesthetics. So it's an aesthetic. Aesthetic, yes. Aesthetic. I added an H. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. The aesthetics of the room. <laughs> Quite nice. <laughs> Don is a speech therapist. <laughs> <laughs> So she's like, I'm on that. Sorry. I'm on it. It's all good. All good. Thank you. I knew you wanted to. Thank you. Appreciate it. I did. So they believe in in deprivation of the body, kind of like this idea that we have to transcend the body, you know, kind of a deal. So he, Buddha, Buddha was living on just one grain of rice a day. So obviously that's not enough carbs. <laughs> not enough caloric intake. So they said he got really, really skinny. You could see his vertebrae popping out and whatnot. And in this worked in some way, like some altered state of consciousness. So he was having these brilliant, you know, like, like hallucinations probably, you know, mystical experiences, quote unquote. He's like, you know, this isn't it because... They're all fleeting. He would have these insane states of bliss, but it was fleeting. So he'd notice that even these states are impermanent, right? So it works for a little while, then it goes away. So he's thinking, you know, this isn't it. It's not about these altered states of consciousness. So he was near death one day. He's lying there. And this woman came and found him and started nurturing him back to health, feeding him food and milk and whatnot. And the, the monks that he was with kind of disowned him because, you know, he kind of gave in and whatnot, right? But he thought, you know, this woman is so kind and so loving, and she's not on a spiritual path. You know, she's, she's just like a normal person in the world, but she's exhibiting all of these qualities that I've been trying to attain. So it was an epiphany him in a couple different ways. For one, he thought, you know what, my body needs nourishment to practice, right? Like that extremism isn't, isn't right. So this is where he found what later would be called the middle way, right? He says, it's not, these, in, the, in the extremes, it's not where it's at. It's in the middle, right? But also, and more importantly than that, from this woman, he, he really saw that these qualities are innate within us. They're not something out there that need to be quote-unquote attained. He really got a felt sense in his body. I think I already am what I'm seeking. I think I could, I could just be who I am and realize this. So he broke away from the traditions that, he's been fo- that he was following, and he decided to do it himself, which I think is really amazing, because he's only been doing it for six years. So here he was, this prince. He was cocky, rich prince. (laughs) 
No, but you know, he was just this. You know, he had no, he didn't even know about old age, sickness, and death. And then he went and studied for six years. And then all of a sudden, it came to him, I could do it myself, right? So it's a huge moment, right? So he went and he found a tree. So he sat underneath this Bodhi tree and he says, you know, I'm not going to move until I reach enlightenment. This is so powerful. Because I think, when is our, like, when is our time? I've said this before, like, when do, when do we have that confidence to say, I'm going to sit down and meditate this morning, and this is it. <laughs> you know, not like I'm going to check it off the box, not because I said I was going to do it, I'm going to get my 20 minutes in, I logged into Insight Timer, you know what I mean, and so it's already logging my time, so I can just space out, and I can show everybody, I meditated three hours. <laughs> but, no, when's our actual time when we say, this is it? Like, I could do it. I mean, it's so amazing. Like, like, I'm the Buddha, I'm the Krishna, I'm the Christ. Like, I'm it. Like, this is it. I could do it. Like, when do we have that removal of doubt? The hindrance of doubt is so out of our awareness that I believe in myself that much, right? So much so I'm going to even make a commitment. I'm not going to move until it happens. That's how confident I am. It's going to happen. So we sat down. And he meditated for six days. And in that time, the demon Mara came to Buddha. And as the story goes, Mara thought that he should be enlightened before Buddha. So he was trying to keep Buddha from being enlightened. So he sent his five beautiful daughters first to uh, use desire and lust to pull Buddha away. But Buddha had a lot of chicks when he was a prince. <laughs> so he was like, ah, I've done that already. It's not it. It's temporary. So then Mara threw, threw fear, a lot of like, demons and you know, lots of monsters and whatnot. That Buddha. And Buddha all the while just stayed with compassionate awareness would send metta, loving kindness, loving friendliness to all the phenomena that arose because he had realized that all this phenomena, they always come and go. He realized this from his years and years of practice. All phenomena comes and goes. So he kept meeting it with loving kindness. But Mara said, look at I have a whole army of beings that think that I should become enlightened first. Who do you have? And the Buddha looked down and he said, I have the earth. The earth is my witness. The earth has been with me for, in his mind, countless lifetimes. And so this is when he put his hand on the earth. He says, the earth is my witness. I shall be enlightened. So this is why when we see Buddha, he's in the mudra of touching the earth, right? I have one hand down, touching the earth. Earth is my witness. So that morning, when he saw the morning star rising in the sky, he became enlightened. And he only became enlightened to the fact that he was already enlightened and that all beings are awake. This was his realization, this bodhi, awake, wakefulness. So after this, he arose from his seat 
And he and he spent I forget how many days, 60, 90 days, just being in the bliss of this liberation, of suffering thoughts, of attaching to suffering thoughts, yeah. And then he came upon the five monks that he had been spending the many years with that disowned him. And when they saw him, they didn't want anything to do with him at first because he had gone off the path and found liberation. <laughs> so he got off the path. So, but when they saw him, they knew something was different. They said, oh, what happened to you? Like, I know they say there's like an aura around him and all that stuff, right? They said, are you omniscient? Are you enlightened? And he simply said, no, I'm awake. I'm awake. <clears throat> and they became his first students. So we're doing on time. And so it was at this time that the Buddha gave the, his first teaching on the, first, the Four Noble Truths. So they say he turned the will of Dharma for the first time. Right? So I think it's interesting when we look at the Four Noble Truths, the first Noble Truth is that there is suffering. And I think that when we look at it from like spiritual principles, it might look one way, but when we look at it from his life, it's very obvious, you know, for him, if he's going to put together some, like, full, for an outline of what to follow, he's like, first, which came to him, but the slap on the head, right, was he woke up to suffering. And I think this is interesting. It reminds me of a story that I don't like to say because it's, it's a visualizing animals hurting, which I don't like, but in this way. You guys heard the story of the, the frogs, and if you put a frog in hot water, a very hot water, the frog is going to jump in, and then it's going to jump the heck out. But if you put a frog in, in water and turn it up really slowly all the way to the boil, a frog won't jump out, right? So um, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like, you know, the Buddha was like, oh, suffering. Like, I'm out, right? Like, I got to get out of that. But we're kind of stewing in suffering, you know? And we're not really jumping out. We're all together, and we're like, hey, is it hot in here? Um, maybe we should jump out. <laughs> no, nah, we're good, you know? No, but that guy jumped out and said it's, he's good, you know? That's, like, that's a hippie frog, you know? Like, we don't want to be a hippie frog. Um... We're just going to all hang out and get really hot together and die. And so this was his point with the suffering. It's like, until we really get it, you know, that there is suffering. And again, too, well, we'll go into the other truth. So he said, okay, this is, we have to wake up to this. But he continues. There's a cause. There's a cause of the suffering. And this is attachment. So there's actually nothing innately wrong with anything. But our attachment to wanting things different than the way they are. You know, this craving mind, aversion mind, this getting hooked so the thoughts aren't a problem, but getting hooked by them can cause suffering. So attachment, the second noble truth. Thankfully, he didn't stop. The third noble truth is that there's cessation. There's a way to remove ourselves from, from the suffering. And what's that? Detachment. Close. 
Yes, yes, both right. It's detachment, but I like to split hairs. It's unattachment. Uh-huh. I just like to split the hairs because detachment can be a little bit of an aversion, you know, or like mm-hmm. a spiritual bypass. So, but unattachment is I could be with you and not follow you. Uh, right? I could be totally with you, be with you, but I don't need to follow you. So allowing everything, letting everything in, letting everything out. Where detachment has a little vibe of like, I don't, I'm just mm-hmm. like, I'm not going to even look at you. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Go away. And then the way to that is the, the Noble Eightfold Path, right? Right view, right intention, right motivation, right work, right speech, right concentration, right mindfulness, right? So then he laid out like, he laid out a path, you know, to that. So maybe let's just, I was going to have us chat a little bit, but maybe let's just meditate for Actually, let's just stand up first, because we're sitting for a while. So I thought maybe we could honor the Buddha and sit down in our seats for a few moments with the intention of, I'm going to reach enlightenment. (laughs) Right here, I'm out. (laughs) Like whatever that means, you know, this, this idea of you know, his intrinsic felt sense there was he didn't, he didn't know how this was going to happen. He just believed that he was it, you know? And so maybe without, like, a technique or anything to do, <clears throat> let's just sit. Let's just sit and be, and with this, this innate confidence that I already am what I'm seeking. Let's just sit for a few moments together, maybe with a very slight intention of meeting anything that you see with a sense of loving friendliness and kindness. If uh, maybe we could have small groups and and chat to see if part of that story resonated with you, and if so, like what parts more resonated with you, and maybe share a little bit with each other. Dying, and then this woman shows up and nurtures him and 
Yeah. And then that action that she did, yeah. which was outside of himself, from this woman coming in, helped awaken him to what's in what's in us innately. Yeah. Uh, through this action of another. Yeah. So I just thought it was sort of ironic that it is about the me. I mean, you know, about going inside to find the me, but it's really about doing that to find the we. So, I don't know, it's just, you know, because it was just interesting in the story how the others showed up yeah. to support him to wake up yeah. to the, the we, mm -hmm. which lives in the me. Yeah. It's a big part of his teaching of interdependence, you know? And that we're not free until yeah. all beings are free, but yeah, having that, um, yeah, that relationship. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, anyone else want to share with the larger group what kind of came up for them? Yeah. Um, about 25 or 30 years ago, my mom told me that frog story. She was a, a therapist. And the last few years she was alive, she uh, started studying spiritual psychology and bringing that into her practice. So, and I thought the same thing. I thought the poor frog. I felt bad for the frog, but it stayed with me for a lot of years. It really had an important message. And we, we were talking about that in our group. And um, the idea that, that, that Dawn said the shock of the frog in the boiling water did something about it. And... Um, uh, and then in our lives, I, I see, or in my life, I see myself in a number of situations that I do have awareness that things are getting worse and I'm in this hot water, but I don't see myself jumping out and saving myself or doing anything because it's sort of maybe a little worse and I've been tolerating it. But So I have the awareness sometimes and then in other situations for periods of time there is no awareness, I'm in any hot water, and then sometimes... I notice it's going on, and still there's no, no action. <laughs> so it's just, but yeah, it's something that it, it's just, it, yeah, like you said, the visual is strong of that, mm -hmm. that little story, but it just stayed, yeah. Hmm? Yeah, the poor frog, <laughs> but it's a helpful teaching. It, it, I think it's very relevant, so, yeah. So you think we should see no evil until we just get slammed with it, and then maybe it's a lot easier to do the job like the Buddha? Huh. Well, that's what I love about gross suffering, you know, is well, that... Well, I'm saying, now look, here we are born in all this misery and yeah. stuff, you know, and we just sort of, the heat just keeps going up, and now the Buddha, I mean, he had none of this going on for so many years, mm -hmm. right? But when he left into it, mm -hmm. he really saw it clearly. Mm -hmm. well, yeah. Most of us aren't so fortunate. Well, I think that's what's what's so beautiful about like really gross suffering. You know, is that we become very good practitioners. Like when I'm suffering, I'm an unbelievable practitioner. Yeah, you know, really incredible. Yeah. And then when we have good samsara, when I have a good samsara, everything is going well. You know, it's like, oh, do I need to meditate today? <laughs> Why? I'm not suffering today. You know. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, you know. 
like at the depression anxiety clinic where I work, I see the best practitioners mm-hmm. ever. Like they're just like, amazing, amazing because it's like I, I kind of have to, you know. Uh, yeah, I've heard it. in cancer groups the the meditation and what goes on is in Probably, short amount yeah. of time is unbelievable. Yeah, Atlanta Medicine Buddha. I lived next door to hospice, right? Mm-hmm. So for two years, hospice was on. I walked up the same staircase. Hospice was on my right. I looked at a dying person for two years, every day best practitioners in the world, right? Yeah, it's amazing, yeah, right, but, and this is like when we, when we meditate, it's, you know, it's just to, to realize that we're the ones in hospice, you know, like, every day, we don't know, every day this could be it, so this is it, so practice like that. also thinking about the connection between suffering and like progress within Buddhism or understanding Buddhism. You know, like the, the sixth patriarch, uh, Huning, uh, lost his father at an early age. Uh, they, the family lost their position, their wealth, and mm. he's delivering firewood. He overhears someone saying one line of the Diamond Sutra. And he becomes enlightened. Now he's a, the sixth patriarch. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, he really understands suffering, so yeah, yeah. it helped him to very quickly wake up. Right. And yeah, yeah. you hear a lot of stories about people on their deathbed becoming enlightened yeah. because mm-hmm. you know you let go of everything and, mm-hmm. and you're able to see clearly. Yeah. Thank you. It was so loud in here. <laughs> was. Impermanence. It was, yeah. That's right. I'm, I'm, and I'm grasping to more talking. The Buddha told another story uh, that's kind of similar. Uh, in the Lotus Sutra, he, he uh, tells a story about a father who wants to rescue his three children from a burning house, but they're so busy playing with their toys and distracted, they're, they want they want to stay in this dilapidated house, mm. rats running around, it's in horrible condition, things falling apart, but they won't leave. Mm. It's like, look, outside it's wonderful. They're like, no, 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 we're just mm. gonna keep playing, you know, and so uh, he basically tells them this lie that, that he has three toys outside for them, you know, a cart, one's pulled by an ox, one's pulled by a goat, one's pulled by something else. Mm-hmm. They run outside to get their toys, and then he says, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no toy. Yeah, psych. Um, I, actually, <laughs> I actually upgraded you guys. Everybody gets an ox cart. And, mm. you, know, you know, he spent 40 years preaching that they were three vehicles. And uh, in this sutra, he says, well, that was skillful means. I just mm-hmm. wanted everyone, no matter how much delusion they were under, to be able to to walk out of the burning house. Yeah. And uh, But there's really only one heart. There's only one truth. And uh, so it's kind of a similar story. Yeah. We're, we're trapped in this suffering, but we won't let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I'll end on, you know, talking about a lot of the suffering stuff is that just kind of end on the reiteration that the suffering is actually <laughs> self-imposed. Like, there is no suffering here. 
like this samsara. It's not like we're trying to get out of this world or something, this suffering. There's, there's no suffering here. It's just that our attachment and our craving and our aversion, we create suffering. There's nothing wrong. A sensation, a strong sensation that we would label pain, that's not innate suffering, right? That's pain. Suffering be when we, comes when we say, I don't like you, I don't want you, push it away. You know, things like loss, you know, sadness is not suffering, it's sadness. How do we want, we wouldn't want a world without sadness, without that tender heartache, right? This is part of our human experience. So it's all about experiencing it authentically and, and raw and genuine and just as an experience, not with, oh, all of this all, all on top of it. So this is like the, the wakefulness is that I'm awake, period. I'm awake. That's it. You know, things don't need to be different than how they are. So I just want to kind of emphasize that because there's a lot of talk about, you know, the, the emphasis on, on suffering. It's really the emphasis on being okay, as Thich Nhat Hanh likes to say, to suffer correctly, <laughs> to learn how to suffer correctly. We suffer wrong. <laughs> we suffer with, a, with aversion, with really there's no such thing. Yeah, one last one. Two minutes. <laughs> so, so what? I mean, what about? So you bring up loss. I mean, if you're fully enlightened and awakened, how do you mourn a, a loved one? I mean, that seems like there's still some level of attachment. If there's any sort of like traditional mourning, which many people go through. Not just the day of the loss, but mm -hmm. um, you just mourn. Mm -hmm. Just mourn. Yes. There's nothing wrong with with mourning, sadness. You know, like I remember watching Tenzin Shogi with the director, Atlanta Medicine Buddha left, and I remember watching Venerable Tenzin Shogi just pouring, just crying, just crying, just out in front of everybody. There's, person was leaving and she was just so filled with sorrow but she had no problem with her sorrow I still struggle with the difference between that and if that goes on how that's not attachment to the loss of another being yeah I don't see this, how that's not attachment yeah well, it reminds me of you know they say a Buddha always has one eye crying mm. you know mm. that there is this sense of compassion you know, but there's also the wisdom piece of having the compassion piece and then the wisdom piece to know that there's impermanence, there's interdependence, and that that being that there's this this innate change and it's being totally okay with it while being being compassionate about it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just being okay with the lived experience of life. You know. And not holding that moment like, I wish she could stay. She wasn't saying, I wish she could stay per se. It was just, sadness is arising. I'm with that sadness. You know? Oh, I need to have her back. No? It's like Yogananda would say, I love all my friends and I don't miss them when they're gone. <laughs> just an odd thing, you know? He's like, I love them, you know? But when they're gone, I don't miss them. But then I love them. You know? So he's just, he's just in the moment with it, you know? And it's, yeah, it's a fine line, but 
Thanks for bringing that up at the end. Here we go. <laughs> so maybe let's just um, let's just sit for a moment. Just dedicate the merit here. all the wisdom, all the love and compassion, all the insights, the togetherness, the community that has been brought up here today, all the positivity. I think of all of our brothers and sisters, all beings, all conscious beings, all in our Long Beach community, in our human community worldwide, all beings seen and unseen that just couldn't be here just trying to survive today, just trying to eat today, trying to provide for themselves, their families. To dedicate the merit of this day to them, to all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy and free from suffering. Omani Pemiyom. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.